Our passage for today's sermon will be from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Again, our passage for today will be from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Please stand and join with me as your act of worship by reading and receiving God's holy infallible word. Starting from verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, You are the son of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may now be seated. Uh, Please join with me in prayer as we come before the Lord to ask him to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we humbly come before you acknowledging, Lord, your all-sufficiency and recognizing that in light of you, that we are uh, insufficient on our own. We are in a dire need of you daily, and we come before you thirsting and hungering after your word. So Lord, feed us, and, and, and may we drink deeply from your word today. Pray, Lord, that the Spirit would illuminate your word and stir in our hearts affections that we may be grown in greater worship and adoration to you. I pray, Father, that you would be with me and that you would empower me in light of my own weakness, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed and Christ's name would be exalted and that your congregation would be edified. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen. When you think of the ocean, what is it that you think of? Do you think of a beautiful scenic view out in the horizon of the sun setting? Do you think of perfect weather with a nice breeze? Do you think of swimming in the cool waters, maybe surfing, sunbathing, relaxing, playing some beach volleyball, barbecuing outdoors, having bonfires through the night, and all of the expensive homes throughout the coastline. As a Californian who loves the beach, and speaking to Philadelphians who wishes they lived one, I'm I'm sure we all have some sort of a positive perception when it comes to the ocean. But in the same ocean, there are also deadly sharks 
There are stingrays. There are enormous riptides and, 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 and waves. And natural disasters such as tsunamis and hurricanes can wipe out thousands of homes and people. I even had one friend back in California who got sucked in a riptide while swimming and almost drowned. I had a surfer friend who, who got stung by a stingray and even saw someone get bit by a shark just 20 yards away from him. Another friend of mine, while he was out swimming with me, slammed his face on a rock by getting crushed by a wave and was rushed to the ER. I, I really don't say these things to discourage you guys from wanting to go to the beach. But the ocean can be a very scary place. And the Bible paints a negative picture of the sea by mentioning how the sea is a dwelling place for demons. The sea was viewed to be a dark, chaotic, disordered place. And the sea is also used in the Bible to depict divine judgment executed against the wicked seen in the flood account and in the Red Sea crossing. Our passage today also takes place on a sea, namely the Sea of Galilee. Knowing that the sea was depicted in such a negative light with dark undertones, it illuminates the background to show us why the disciples were so captivated with great fear whenever they encountered a chaotic storm out at sea. The gospel truth to our sermon will be, fear not, stand firm in faith for Christ is your sovereign creator and Exodus savior. Our sermon today will be organized under three main headings. The first heading of our sermon will be, Stand Firm for Jesus Leads Us into the Turbulent Storm. The second heading of our sermon will be, Fear Not for Jesus is Sovereign over the Chaotic Waters. Our last and final third heading will be, Behold that Jesus Saves Us from Drowning in the Judgment Waters. Our setting of today's story of Jesus walking on the sea takes place right after Jesus feeds 5,000 on the shore. If you look with me on the first verse, verse 22, it states, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Matthew notes the first word, immediately, just right after the feeding, Jesus strongly urges his disciples to get into the boat to travel across the sea without him. The verb he made from this very verse we're looking at is a very forceful word, anakatsu, which indicates that Jesus was strongly urging his disciples with his forceful authority to get into the boat without him. After being so amazed by the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, the Gospel of John accounts that the crowds wanted to pressure Jesus to be their king, which indicates that the reason why Jesus sought to retreat so quickly from the crowd was to conceal his messianic identity. The reason being that this would thwart his mission as his time has not come yet. 
contrary to John's account, Matthew does not add all of these specific details and instead seeks to emphasize Jesus's sovereign command to purposefully lead his disciples straight into the storm, which lends us to our first heading of our sermon today. Stand firm for Jesus leads us into the storm knowing that there is a storm ahead. It's apparent here that Jesus is intentionally guiding his disciples into the conflict and storm out in the Sea of Galilee in order to prepare them for a greater conflict, which lies ahead toward the end of Matthew as it is progressing towards the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Christ, which is the greatest storm that the disciples will endure in Jesus's life. As you might recall from the Exodus account back in the Old Testament, God chooses not to lead Israel on dry land, but chooses to lead them directly into the Red Sea to demonstrate his glory. It's a reoccurring theme and pattern in scripture for God to lead his people into conflict and place before us obstacles we cannot overcome in our finitude in order to grow us in faith as God is the one who overcomes our fears and obstacles. Likewise, in the Christian life that we live, Jesus purposely leads us into the Sea of Galilee where the storm is so that we can know in our hearts how great God truly is as he demonstrates that he is greater than any storm in our lives. People often think, if I'm serving Christ, if I'm serving the church, shouldn't God make my life easier and not harder? How can it be that trials and storms in my life are God's tools to grow me? Why does God have to make my life so hard? There is a misconception in American Christianity that being a Christian means that all of our hardships will simply vanish out of thin air, but that is such a false notion. Being a follower of Christ means that there will be many trials that we will face. There will be many storms that we will weather through in order to grow us in greater faith. This very same theme is also seen in Jonah where Yahweh intentionally sends a great storm against Jonah's ship for his sovereign purposes. Yahweh commands a storm to strike the ships on the sea in order to ultimately deliver them by calming the storm. Parallel to Jonah's account, Jesus here intentionally sends his disciples into the storm in order to save them by calming it. What is strange is that Jesus does not join his disciples on the boat, but he ends up retreating on a mountain alone to pray in the deep of the night. Verse 23 states, if you look with me there, and after he had dismissed the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. You see, prayer is an integral part to Jesus's ministry, and the gospel writers make sure to mention it sporadically to highlight key points on his mission. The emphasis on Jesus retreating alone to the mountain to pray until nightfall highlights the significance of the events that will proceed. 
What Matthew also brings to attention in verse 23 is that this narrative takes place at night. In verse 25, Matthew also repeats that it is the fourth watch of the night, which signifies that it is the deepest part of the night around 3 through 6 a.m. in the morning. This repeated mention of night should not be regarded as just insignificant detail that we just gloss over, but it should color the way this narrative is read with its dark undertones and spiritual opposition that is going around. As a matter of fact, the last time we see Jesus praying alone into the night was at his darkest hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion. The mention of night not only highlights a historical circumstance of what what is going on, but it symbolizes the spiritual reality of spiritual warfare occurring in the background. Meanwhile, in verse 24, there is a shift from Jesus praying alone on the mountain to showing us what is going on in the meantime with the disciples rowing in the middle of a storm at sea at night. Verse 24, if you look with me there states, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Matthew notes how the disciples rode many stadia. A stadion is 200 yards. And John chapter 9, verse 19 specifies that these disciples went 25 or 30 stadia, which is around three or four miles. It's hard enough to walk three miles. It's even harder when you're walking three miles in the middle of a storm. But imagine rowing three miles against turbulent winds and waves and how the disciples must have been all wet, exhausted, cold, and scared out of their minds. The disciples are far out in the middle of sea somewhere, and they're caught in a severe storm, which causes them much distress. In the other sea storm narrative, we we see, and, and if you guys know that, they were afraid that Jesus was on their boat sleeping. But imagine how much more uneasy they must have felt in light of Jesus's absence where he was nowhere to be found. One of the complications of this story is found here as the disciples are out at sea being tortured by the sea. The last time Jesus is seen here and Matthew, what he does is keenly symbolizes the storm as a conflict against the chaotic cosmos and powers threatening their lives as they are prevented from reaching their destination. From the outset, it might seem as though Jesus has abandoned the disciples to just drown in the middle of the sea in a storm. But I want you to notice that there is a greater purpose behind it all, which is to grow them in greater faith. When you are caught in the middle of a storm in your life, it too might feel as though Christ is absent. Even though it might seem like Christ has abandoned you in your storms, and you cry out, where are you, God? Know that Jesus is always there for you. Know that he's always interceding on behalf of you in your weakness, even when you feel like he is not. Even though Jesus is not physically present with you, he is always spiritually present with you through the Holy Spirit. 
Even in this story, Jesus does not merely leave his disciples in their anguish, but he ultimately comes to them to deliver them and bring them peace. Jesus ends up praying until 3 a.m. in the morning. Imagine praying that long and miraculously realizes his disciples are caught in a storm out at sea and suddenly decides to walk to them on sea to rescue them. Which lends us to our second heading of our sermon today. Fear not, for Jesus is sovereign over the chaotic waters. In light of the dramatic depiction of the roaring seas, the crescendo of the story is Jesus walking over the waves over the storm. Verse 25 states, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. What a strange picture it is to imagine in your head. A person walking on water. This miracle account is truly one of the most unbelievable stories. It seems like a movie scene pulled straight out of a recent superhero movie. Often in our modern lens, we could dismiss this story of being some sort of fantasy conjured up by our imaginations. But I want to remind you that this really actually happened in real space and time. Jesus really did indeed walk on water. Oftentimes, I wonder what it would have been like for Jesus to walk on the sea all the way to the disciples. How uncomfortable would it have been for Jesus to walk all the way there, to have all of his clothes soaked in cold water, and to walk all the way in three miles in the middle of the sea alone in complete darkness, having the rain and waves crash down upon him? You wonder if Jesus was floating or whether he was walking on top of the water as we would walk on top of concrete, or if his knees were submerged and if he was dragging his feet all the way towards his disciples. But Matthew chooses not to include these interesting details that we would want to know. But he chooses to emphasize the most important thing, how this act shows that Jesus is the creator from Genesis who has dominion over the chaotic, disordered creation, and that he is the Exodus redeemer who has come to deliver his people. Sea walking or walking on the sea is a divine quality reserved for God alone in the Old Testament, as humans have only been recorded to walk through water and not on it. More specifically, the Old Testament agrees that the very act of walking over the sea displays divine authority over the winds and the waves and all of creation. Job chapter 20, 38 verse 16 displays how the ability of walking on the sea belongs to God alone as it states, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Similarly, Psalm 77 Verse 19 serves as another passage which vividly echoes Jesus walking over the sea in striking detail. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. But instead of recognizing Jesus as the God-man who walks over the sea, the disciples are terrified thinking that Jesus is some sort of ghost. Verse 26 states, 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. It's pitch black. The rain's pouring nonstop. And the waves are crashing on their small boat, rocking them back and forth, back and forth like a roller coaster gone wrong. And all of the disciples are disillusioned and dead tired with no sleep. And they're just trying their best to stay alive for another minute. A disciple peers into the thick black fog and the downpour of rain and spots something moving and shrieks, guys, what is that over there? They yell back, what in the world are you talking about? I do not see a thing. Another yells, you're right. I think I see something moving over there. I think it might be a demon. All of a sudden, the disciples' fear over this mysterious supernatural figure becomes greater than the storm. Because the fact that this mysterious figure is walking over the storm signifies its greater power and serves as a greater threat than even the storm they are currently in. The word ghost here is a unique word that occurs only once in the New Testament that could either mean ghost or apparition. In their cultural context, the sea was commonly understood to be an abode for evil spirits where they would dwell. It's viable that the disciples might have thought that they either saw a ghost of a dead Jesus or they saw an angel or demons. In the Old Testament, which will help us understand what they exactly thought they saw, four beasts are prophesied to emerge from the sea in Daniel chapter 7. And serpent-like dragons that resemble and symbolize Satan, such as Rahab, Tiamat, and Leviathan, are told to dwell in the waters of chaos. With close association between the demonic and the waters, the disciples were most likely fearing the deceptive, demonic, cosmic powers at work against them, rather than merely fearing a ghost of a dead person. The disciples' fear of the unseen realm reveals their unbelief as Jesus has already displayed to them his authority over the demonic at Gadarenes, where Jesus casted out demons into the swine, into the abyss. We see here in the disciples' reaction how fear blinds you from seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Fear is this terrible feeling that grips you when something threatens you or endangers your life or your livelihood. We fear things we cannot control. We fear things we have no power or control over. In this modern age especially, we buy into this illusion that we can control things like how long we live through advances in medicine and science. This pandemic or this year alone has truly swayed everything out of our control as it reminds us that we are merely needy creatures in need of God's sustenance. Our church probably had many plans, but they all became thwarted and irrelevant overnight. 
you might have had plans, plans to go on vacation. Whatever it was, it's out of your control. Even though you might not want to admit it here, we all have fears in our hearts because we are human and we are all weak. As we fear things we have no control over, what are things that you fear the most? Do you fear losing your job? Do you fear rejection from society? Do you fear persecution? Do you fear the government? Do you fear COVID or getting some sort of illness? Do you fear losing your life? Do you fear the death of a loved one? Do you fear what will happen to you in the future? We are captivated in fear because we do not fear the Lord enough. The remedy is to have a greater fear in the Lord. We must recognize that God is ultimately in sovereign control and is in power of all things. Out of the gloomy darkness, the disciples hear a familiar voice that comforts them. Jesus reassures his disciples by calling out to them with his words of assurance. Verse 27 states, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus here uses the I am statement in the Greek ego a me, which is translated in the, our ESV translation as it is I. This phrase could either be understood as self-identification. Hey, disciples, it's me, Jesus, do not fear. Or divine self-authentification. I am who I say I am. I am Yahweh. Do not fear. This ego and me statement used here carries a double meaning of Jesus self-identifying himself to the disciples while also revealing Jesus's true identity in a concealed way in a veiled fashion until his resurrection. The I am statement highlights that Jesus is the son of God. And the disciples later declare that reality in this narrative in verse 32. In addition, the Jewish readers would have likely picked up on this reference to Yahweh as it alludes back to the Exodus account, which connects Jesus to being Yahweh who rules over the sea. Jesus's words of assurance here mirrors Moses's words of assurance to his people in the Exodus when they were captivated in fear of Pharaoh and the army. As Moses states, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Except this time, it's Yahweh himself who is assuring his disciples to not fear, for he will fight on behalf of them as he relinquishes the chaotic waters. In other words, as Moses reassures his people to find stability in the God who fights as their divine warrior, Jesus gives assurance to his disciples by revealing himself as the divine warrior who fights against their enemy to bring order from disorder. 
the story comes to its resolution here as the chaos conflict is solved by the true revelation of Christ as Yahweh, who is Lord over the sea. The disciples' fear of the storm disappears as their fear is substituted with a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. The reason why the disciples were so captivated in fear at first was because they feared the storm more than they feared Jesus. The reason why we are gripped by fear is because we fear God too little and we fear other things way too much. The only way to conquer all of our fears is with a greater fear, which is the fear of the Lord. Like the disciples, we need to recognize who Jesus is in his holiness and radiant transcendent majesty. We need to behold Jesus in his sovereign salvific power and bow before him in reverence and awe. This is how we have a correct order and proper perspective in all things. We are not to fear for Jesus is the sovereign one over the chaotic waters and he is sovereign over all of our storms. Do you fear death over God? Do you fear people over God? Do you fear conflict over God? Or do you truly fear God for who he truly is? If you are gripped in fear through these turbulent times, the Lord Jesus comes to you today and says these words of assurance. Take heart. I am who I say I am. Do not be afraid. All of this lends to our last and final point. Behold that Jesus saves you from drowning in the judgment waters. From verses 28 through 33, Matthew accounts Peter's attempt and failure to join Jesus in walking on water due to his lack of faith. The story of Peter's attempt to walk on water is exclusively found only in Matthew and does not occur in other gospel accounts. This implies that this section is a mini story inside of a larger story. In verse 28, Peter confidently acknowledges Jesus to be Lord of the storm by stating, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. From the outset, Paul calls Jesus Lord. Peter calls Jesus Lord, which indicates his reverential recognition of the great authority of Christ. Even more significant is the manner in which Peter answers Jesus's I am statement by responding, if it is you. The heart of what Peter is saying here is since you are Lord of the creation, tell me to participate with you in your miraculous power. Such a grand request might've been motivated from the previous feeding miracle that happened right before this, in which Jesus allowed his disciples to participate and emulate his miracle by multiplying the bread and the fish to feed 5,000. Although the reason why Peter here makes this particular request is left unstated, it could be implied that Peter desires to exercise the authority of Christ to share in his dominion. Not only does Christ have the authority to walk on water, 
But he also has the ability and desire to share his kingly authority with Peter in order to perform this miracle. Verse 29 states, Jesus said, come. On the basis of Jesus' authority. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This sharing of Christ's authority runs parallel to chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus sends out his disciples on the basis of his authority to demon cast, heal disease, and proclaim his kingdom on earth. More specifically, this theme of shared dominion seems to foreshadow Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus gives Peter his kingdom authority to rule on behalf of him right after Peter's creedal confession of Christ being the son of God. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 9, I will give you the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here in our passage today grants Peter authority over the water and Peter begins to briefly walk on water toward Jesus until he sinks. It's on the basis of his faith, which he is able to have his shared dominion with Christ. The only way we too can rise above the storm rule over our sinful desires and live in this time of chaotic, turbulent times is through faith and dependence on our Lord. In verse 30, the shallowness of Peter's confession is exposed as his confidence in Christ quickly dwindles once he encounters the chaotic winds. Verse 30 states, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The root of Peter's fear here stems from his little faith and doubt, which overtakes him as he begins to drown. The question we ask is, what was the nature of Peter's little faith? Was it total unbelief or shallow, inadequate faith? In this context, Peter's faith is best represented as a shallow, inadequate faith. Even though Peter has a divided heart as he drowns, he still maintains his trust in Christ to save him as he cries out to the Lord. In this regard, this sequence foreshadows Matthew chapter 26 where Peter shows initial confidence that he will not fall away. He will not betray Christ and will fight for him. But he eventually ends up drowning out in doubt in the face of chaos as he denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. We can be just like Peter by thinking that we too have great faith. We often might think that, hey, I'm a solid believer when in reality, we actually have very little faith in Christ. When strong winds and waves crash down upon your life, these trials test the degree of faith you have in Christ. Instead of fearing not and standing firm, Peter stumbles and drowns as he deems the wind and the waves to be of greater power than Jesus. Instead of sharing dominion over the sea, the cosmic waters have dominion over Peter as Jesus is denied in his heart. Peter here prays one of the shortest prayers in all of scripture. Simple three words. 
Lord, save me. Even such a short prayer like, Lord, save me, is sufficient for Jesus to hear and answer in compassion as Jesus quickly reaches out his hand and pulls Peter from drowning. When you are drowning out in sea, when you're drowning in your sin, when you're gasping in air for air, when you're in doubt, call out to the Lord just as Peter did here. Even with just an ounce of faith and a simple cry, Lord, save me, is just enough for Jesus to hear, for this is the Savior that we worship. Even when everything seems like it's collapsing, even when, you're, when, it, when it feels like you're drowning, Christ is always there to pull you up out of your deep turmoil for his grace and mercy is abundant and sufficient. In verse 31, Jesus stretches out his hand to save Peter from drowning and rebukes Peter for his little faith and doubt. Verse 31 states, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In the Exodus, God commanded Moses to lift up his staff and stretch it out, to stretch out his hands over the sea to divide it. This was so that his people would be saved from the judgment waters. Just like Moses, Christ intervenes by stretching out his hand and does what God does by saving Peter. It is important to note that as Jesus saves Peter from his physical death from the waters, this act of salvation for signifies the ultimate act of Peter being saved from his spiritual death and from the grip of Satan. Because Jesus drowns in the cup of God's wrath poured out in Peter's place. As you were drowning in your sin, Christ stretched out his hand and saved you from being drowned in God's judgment on your behalf. In verse 32, Jesus calms the storm as they get into the boat. Verse 32 states, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Just like the act of walking on water, the stilling of the storm is a divine act that only Yahweh can perform. All in all, today, we saw six miracles that occurred in this narrative. Jesus sensed trouble while praying on dry land. Jesus walked over the very sea. Jesus spoke as God. Jesus shared his ability to walk on water. Jesus stretched out his hand to save Peter, and Jesus calmed the storm. All of these miracles vindicate that Jesus is the creator from Genesis who has sovereign control over the chaotic waters and storms. And he is our redeemer from Exodus who has come to redeem his people. In verse 33, as a response of beholding this mighty redemptive deed, the disciples worship Jesus as the son of God. Verse 33 states, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. The response of doxological praise from the disciples is a typical way that sea narratives end from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. As Israel beheld the great power of the Lord, they grew in greater faith 
And the disciples also grow in greater faith here as they declare Jesus to be the son of God. After crossing the Red Sea, Moses and the people sang to God for saving them, for drowning their enemy into the judgment waters. Just like Israel, the disciples break out in genuine wholehearted praise for his salvific deed. There seems to be an obvious growth in the understanding and their understanding of Christ's messianic identity. Because this is the first time the disciples recognize and call Jesus the Son of God in the Gospels. This is truly one of the greatest miracles in the Gospels as it grows the disciples in a significant understanding of Jesus' true identity of the Messiah. And, and, And as we also weather through storms, Jesus intends to grow us in a greater understanding of who he is as he demonstrates his power in our weakness. Through salvation, Jesus gets all of the glory. When Jesus rescues us from our storms and saves us from drowning in our sin, we respond in worship for there is nothing we could have ever done to save ourselves but it's everything Christ did on our behalf in his mercy and grace unto his glory. Please join with me in prayer.